0: A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by Toronto drag performer and media critic, Alison Chains.
1: Hi, hello. So good to be here. Good day, Kiora.
0: <laughs> Welcome to the show. And filmmaker, drag performer, and actor, Champagne. Welcome to the show, Champagne. Oh, hi, Hello. So today we're going to be looking at the Outback and King's Cross in the 60s and 70s was dicey. The center of Sydney's red light district and dominated by gangsters with nicknames like Mr. Sin, you wouldn't think... Same. (laughs) Yeah. Is that what people call you, Mr. Sin?
1: Yeah, out of drag.
0: Uh, Oh, beautiful. So you wouldn't think this would be a place for a fun night out for Ma and Pa suburbia. But you would be wrong. The Carousel Club on the corner of Darlinghurst Road and Roslyn Street was built to house the fabulous Lay Girls Cabaret by notorious uh, Australian underworld figure Abe Saffron. The cabaret was a massive smash and attracted a wide audience who wanted to see some of the best show girls that Sydney had to offer. Had either of you heard of Lay Girls? before? No,
2: honestly, I had not.
1: I think I had, but only because of the context of looking things up from uh, this movie. Yeah, I
0: mean this is iconic, and if you go on YouTube, there are a number of their performances from the like the '90s that have been recorded, and they are like straight up showgirls. They're in sequin corsets, Mm -hmm. they're in feathers, there's glitter, there's so much glitter. Wild. They're really, really good, and um, they were also, of course, a drag show, and of course female impersonators mm-hmm. as they say in australia which we do not really use that term here in north america and uh, the review was this grand day out for suburbanites and hen nights which is another term i love that we do not use here in north america and it was so popular because a lot of these people did not realize they were watching female impersonators in fact they thought they were just watching really good showgirls oh
2: yes i love the slight turn yeah, I
1: love nothing more than a good dose of trickery yeah. <laughs> with my dress Isn't
0: that funny? Yeah, we're going to be getting that into that in one of the films that we are talking about today. And of course, the crown jewel of the show was Carlotta. Now, Carlotta is not only an incredible performer, and again, you can see her work on YouTube. She's amazing. She's also an early pioneer for transgender rights. And although she wasn't the first person to receive sex reassignment surgery in Australia in the 70s, she was certainly one of the most public. And her presence in the media and willingness to become an Australian. Australian media icon helped to usher in a general social acceptance. And now, despite the acceptance that the review garnered these performers and the LGBTQA2S plus community in general, gay sex was still illegal in Australia until 1994, the year of these movies, and in Tasmania until 1997. The Carousel Club and the Lay Girls Review was still an extremely dangerous place to work, it was, after all, run by mobsters. And the establishment sold stolen liquor and cigarettes, and Carlotta's biography talks about the regular abuse of performers, including one girl who was hit over the head with a chair when she tried to quit. And there's even oh. a 40-year-old missing person's probable murder cold case that's associated with the establishment that's, wow. like, a big thing. It's a journalist who was trying to unload things, and she oh was... My um, gosh. that my The last place she oh, was seen no. was, the car- was the Carousel Club. That's a whole other rabbit hole people can oh. go down. And this is something that's always been fascinating to me about drag performance in general, (laughs) because despite its like overt sexuality of the art form and often the seediness of the establishment, I went many, many times to the Odyssey in Vancouver and saw things I should not have seen in the bathroom. It really seems to be a bridge to mainstream acceptance, at least for a brief period of time. It happened in the 70s with Carlotta, and it's happening now with Drag Race. And of course, it happened in 1994 with a little film that was based on the lay girl's review. In fact, the movie directly name checks it as one of the characters was an original lay girl. The Carousel Club closed in 1993 and The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, was released in 1994, supposedly inspired by the lay girls hitting the road after the closure of their venue. It was a mega hit, garnering huge box office, Oscar nominations, and a bafo Broadway musical, which we're going to talk about. I remember watching this with my dad when I was a tween. I think I was like 12. And... even then, it was difficult to watch because with him. He's, he's very particular about his films. And it has a lot of sex, drugs, and violence that we had to have a conversation about afterwards. In fact, the movie ends with uh, one of the characters' 17-year-old child watching his dad perform in an establishment we've already seen contains violence towards him. But it's also amazing costumes, colors, fun musical numbers, and of course ping pong balls (laughs) who can forget (laughs) so for me it's really a movie about resilience and celebration in the face of a cruel outside world which is why i think it hit so big champagne champagne what is priscilla queen of the desert about if people have not seen it for some reason which they should
2: listen in my humble opinion i do believe that priscilla queen of the desert is the most iconic australian film (laughs) <laughs> dwarfed only, dwarfed only by Baz Lerman's Australia. <laughs> I kid, I kid, Stop. obviously. But there's no other movie that makes a faggot want to, like, jump on the top of a bus and just throw <laughs> some fabric like Priscilla.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that image, it's the things that they managed to capture in that film are really spectacular. It's beautiful, the contrast of it. Yeah, yeah. And the contrast, too, of, like, all of this finery and the artifice of drag and, like, the structural integrity amidst, like, the wild of the Australian outback is the perfect contrast of images. Oh, my God. And, in fact, the inspiration was when the director actually saw a drag queen walking down the street after Mardi Gras in, like, all her, like, falling apart glory and her part of the feathers of her boa came off and started rolling away like a tumbleweed <laughs> she was like oh drag queens in the outback that's it that's what it oh needs my to god be.
2: that's too funny can you imagine like the amount of grease paint they went through like how how grease paint just melts <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh we're gonna get into melting so before we do champagne just give people like a quick little plot summary of what this okay, is okay so
2: essentially this film is about um two drag two drag queens and one trans performer who um hit the australian outback to essentially get to a gig that they've been booked for, which seems across the country, I don't know how long it takes to get across that country, um, to get to the gig and fun and shenanigans happen throughout and also intense things happen throughout. But this is what happens when you throw three, three queers on a bus that's about to break down.
1: (laughs) I hereby christen this budget Barbie camper, Priscilla, queen of the desert
0: we should also say these three performers so um, they are all heterosexual but they at the time Hugo Weaving was starting to become a name who plays uh, Mitzi the Magnificent and then you have mm-hmm. Terrence Stamp which I remember my mother being so excited about Terrence oh. Stamp um, because she, uh, the only thing she'd ever seen him in was in these like He-Man macho roles and here she was uh, playing a transgender person mm-hmm. this is one of Guy Pierce's first like oh. film roles as uh, Felicia Jolly Goodfellow which is one of the greatest for a drag performer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so good. Felicia she- Felicia Jolligood fellow is an amazing drag name, but also Guy Pierce is just so, so hot in this Beautiful. movie. Yeah. So stunningly gorgeous.
0: The whole movie and understands how beautiful their behind is, and so you yeah. get a lot of shots of her behind, like yeah. a lot. And of also,
2: shots like of simultaneously, just wants to make you punch them in the face.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, totally.
0: That's why they put up with her, though, right? Because she's so pretty. <laughs> it's the it's the thing. But um, I think what's so interesting, a lot of people might not know about this is, of course, yeah, Hugo Weaving wasn't just wasn't quite yet the mega star. Terrence Stamp had a name, but um, where uh, Guy Pierce was coming from is he was on Neighbors. He was the heartthrob for neighbors. And so this in Australia to go and see this performer doing this would have been a complete tonal shift from that, right? And this is also the role, weirdly, that kicked open the door for him to get auditions for LA Confidential in 96, which made him a superstar. Interesting.
1: Wow, that's incredible.
0: The thing about that role is that this is a film about resilience. And it's interesting when you talk mm-hmm. to different people about who this movie is about. Who do you, each of you, let's start with you, Shampi. Who do you think the central character of this I film I mean, is? I
2: really do think the central character is um, the one with the child, whose name I can't remember right now. Bernadette. Mitzi the Missy. Magnificent. Um, so mm-hmm. in my opinion, it's Mitzi's. Um, I can see how it would, yeah, I could see how it could be others. But in my opinion, the main line is hers.
1: Now, I think they want to. I think they want us to think that Tick is the main character of this movie and it's the whole. Tick got the gig. Tick is the whole reason they're traveling across the country. It's all about Tick trying to reconnect to his kid. However, I kind of think this is Bernadette's movie. I think at the end of the day, the character we see the most growth and range from and kind of the most importance of story is Bernadette. There's something about the storyline of, like, trans acceptance and comfort and finding love as especially, like, an older trans person in Australia in the 1990s that always kind of trumps the storyline of Tick, like reuniting with their child for me like by the end of the movie I'm always focusing on what Bernadette's been through I think more than what Tick has experienced I feel like I'm always left more satisfied by Bernadette's storyline and experience um I think secretly it's Bernadette's movie.
0: So aside from the the boa tumbleweed, this is also based on the life of a drag performer named Cindy Pastel, who has a very conflicting relationship with this film because the character of Tick is very much based on her. She had a Mm. wife and she had a child. She took custody of her child later in life. She realized that she had not come out to her child until the two of them were sitting in the theater together and watching the final scene where Hugo Weaving does come out to his child comes out to oh. his child and apparently the two of them just sat next to each other and his son held her hand and they just were like nope I just know we're okay and Cindy Pastel was like oh okay so that was That's their cute. little coming out moment with the film um she talks very openly about this but the the conflicting issue here is that she did not sell her life rights the movie is based on her and she has received no recompense from this aside from the fact that she can say the movie is based on me and she does a lot of the documentaries and things like that talking about it afterwards um there's a great documentary about this called frock in a hard place uh which i used as a big (laughs) um, point isn't that fabulous (laughs) Um,
1: that's so good oh my god
2: for her, all these documentaries are that uh, that are like, hey, we still like you to, to use you for a documentary, but we can pay you a lunch.
0: Yeah, 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 I'm sure she received some recompense for this. And again, she was able to say, "I'm the inspiration for Priscilla Queen of the Desert," so there was that. But again, this is kind of like flash dance territory, where this is someone's life rights who were taken and weren't exactly recompensed in a way they should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, so watching that, uh, also a lot of Cindy Pastel stuff. If you want to see her on YouTube, she's there too, and her stuff is really, really special. But uh, I'm with you with Bernadette because. This is something that's always interesting to me. When you have these, um, I'm not even going to say heterosexual because I'm going to bring up another actor who had issues playing a character in drag later. What um, men tend to have is they want to play beautiful women. Dustin Hoffman talked about it when they did Tootsie. Terrence Stamp talks, <laughs> talked about it playing uh, Bernadette that she wanted to be beautiful and wasn't actually allowed to see the dailies or herself in a mirror. She just played it and was shocked when she saw the film, and herself, because she's like, oh my god, I look like an old dog, and was mad about it, until she realized what the performance actually was. Um, and then Neil Patrick Harris actually had big issues and a lot of fear, playing <laughs> so- okay, wait,
2: I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt. In the case of Neil Patrick Harris, that is just like, internalized homophobia, and like what happens when you're fed of Silver Spoon as a gay kid in a heteropatriarchal world throughout your entire life.
1: I'm gonna put an amen on that. I think it's always really interesting, especially as like two people who have been doing drag for a long time now, and like have been performing. I think I've been doing drag for, um, it'll be, uh, it'll be eight. I think it'll be eight years in August. So little of my drag experience is this kind of like commercialized idea that it's like really scary. It's like really, really scary to finally get in drag. Like the idea that Neil Patrick Harris has had this big narrative of being like, I just really had to take the plunge and you know toughen up and really, act, really excess within myself how, uh. the you know bravery to put on women's clothing. One of my favorite terms ever. And I don't know, I kind of think that kind of um, self-ascribed bravery is important. And I think, yes, like living a, a, a a true identity within yourself and expressing that freely is like very brave and very important. And I respect people who are able to get in drag and get out and perform. But for the case of a Hollywood actor being like, I was really scared to take the plunge and get paid, you know, Millions of dollars for putting on a skirt and interloping in a field where professionals have been doing this for 30 years. That's what I hear when I hear that. So when people are like, oh, I'm afraid to dress like a woman, I'm like, oh, okay, sure. I
0: think the interesting thing for me is they want to be pretty women. If they're going to be a woman, they have to be attractive. And I think that's fascinating to me. Oh. Like, what's up
1: with that? Like, what's up with that? But I think, like, I think it's psychologically, and I think, like, Freud would probably attest to this, that there's, like, probably something deeply ingrained psychologically that most men just, like, want to be able to fuck themselves. Ah, interesting. And so I think the, you know, it's like how men always joke where they're like, if I could suck my own dick, I'd never leave the house. It's like, so I think men just want to be a pretty woman. So, theoretically, if they were a separate person that they could fuck, they'd want to fuck them.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And its I think what's interesting to me about the Bernadette character, though, is that moving aside the fact she looks like an old dog, which I don't think she does. She looks like a woman who has taken care of herself and and dresses very elegantly and her facial expressions are my favorite in the drag performances. She's so committed. (laughs) Um, I think for me, the fact that that role is played as someone with so much dignity, who clearly has been through so much shit and is is going to take the high road in everything. Her comebacks are so clear and delivered so beautifully.
2: So on point. Now,
0: listen here, you mullet. Why don't you just light your tampon and blow your box apart? Because it's the only bang you're ever going to get, sweetheart. And the only time she loses her shit Mm. is when um, Felicia Jolly Goodfellow deadnames her in public.
1: You're a bloody marvel, Bernie.
0: (laughs) Bernadette, please. What's that? My name isn't Bernie. She said her name isn't Bernie.
1: It's Ralph.
0: So it's it's really I I think it's really a groundbreaking performance, and again, non-trans actors playing you know trans people as a as a thing. Obviously, now Mm. we know no bueno. But in terms of representation. I don't think this is bad representation. Stop me if I'm wrong.
1: No, I mean, I can't speak to any experience aside from being a drag performer uh, who embraces their gender fluidity and uh, exists working with. Uh, A lot of trans people and has Throughout my career but I really Think like uh, Terrence Stamp's portrayal Of Bernadette is it's the it's the fact That you use the word dignity Becky it's exactly That it's such a Mm -hmm. dignified portrayal Of an older Queer person an older trans woman That has such an inherent Strength and beauty to it Like those shots of of Bernadette In that kind of like white flowy Sundress towards the end of the movie when everything's kind of wrapping up She's so stunning, just, like, casually beautiful and so, like, so uh, sitting proudly in in her femininity that, like, I don't know, it's always felt like a really beautiful portrayal of a trans woman to me, especially just because she's no bullshit as well. It's never like a caveat to her personality that she's trans. She's like, deal with me.
0: She also mm-hmm. has to come to terms with herself. You mentioned earlier that this is about her journey because she mm-hmm. talks about the, the movie kicks off with her, her partner, Trumpet, who I believe is like 24, <laughs> 25. She, he uh, he, Trumpet. he, he Trumpet. asphyxiates on his own peroxide. It's amazing as he's dyeing his hair. But even she talks about to find someone to love you and take care of you. You are a novelty. And then when she meets Bob, she's no longer a novelty because Bob sees her for who she is yeah. and that's why she decided Bob, to stay who
2: by the way is also in muriel that's bed. right
0: well it, okay so we should probably talk about bill hunter because bill hunter we will get into bill hunter bill hunter's career is basically as long as the australian film industry itself wow he started back <laughs> in like the 60s he is he w- is iconic and so the fact that they got bill hunter who did film this simultaneously with muriel like they had to keep flying him back oh and wow
1: okay Funny.
0: But he actually, this this movie is like bargain basement. I think they made it for like a million six. Like there was no money for this mm. film. He actually believed so much in what this film was saying. He took a cut rate for it because he was like, I just, I need to be in it. And his appearance also gave it that air of legitimacy in Australia so they could get that kind of distribution for it. Cool. That's amazing. Nice. It's wild how uh,
1: far he can swing from being so likable in Priscilla and so charming mm-hmm. and kind of like oh, this, like, sweet man just wants to protect these people and, like, do what's right to being, like, abjectly horrifying in Muriel's The wedding. worst, you know? Like, like... horrifyingly awful. <laughs> relationship
0: with his wife is kind of fascinating to me though because obviously she manipulates you see okay this is okay well this becomes a broader subject how do you feel I've never liked watching this is why I'm gay stuff that always makes me it always feels very reductive to me and I think this film plays it a little tongue-in-cheek in in that, like yeah yeah, I'm gonna trace it back to this one point but we all know that's not it right but I think Mm -hmm. maybe for a mainstream audience they might not see it that way especially because it is very stereotypical like I was a used as a child like thing uh, you know I yeah. always wanted to play with the dolls um, what did you think of those moments where you do see that like this is how I ended up here and same with uh, him going back and being like my wife got me drunk and tricked me into marrying her so I take her back to Australia
1: I mean the, I mean the, the whole conversations around consent about that and uh, his relationship with his wife in this movie is very very odd and like <sighs> it, it, it's kind of one of the more that whole period of the movie, that whole section of the movie when they're in Cooper Petty and you're learning more about uh, about Bob, uh, Bob and his wife, is it kind of takes me out of it a little bit because it's too, uh, it's almost too real. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That it's like this is this is a little too believable that for someone to gain landed immigrant status in a country that they would like marry and then become full of rage, like it's just something that happens unfortunately
0: no i'm i'm there with you and i think like the point of view of uh, seeing that like initially you're shown that he keeps her down that like she just wants yeah. to sing she wants to perform she wants to be the center of attention and he's like nope 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 even though she obviously does very well for herself in the entertainment entertainment industry in a very mm-hmm. specific niche in this town you know she could make she, she seems to enjoy it why not um you know but then you see what she did to him so it's like oh is that the balancing point is that why
1: yeah like are they trying to explain away their relationship or the fact that it's rooted in the idea that she drugged him and things like that and convinced her to marry him yeah it's a it's a weird kind of push pull they try to establish between uh, you, two not great ways of treating humans. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I want to bring us into something a little bit lighter cuz let's talk about these performance numbers which let's be honest, like mm-hmm. aside from all of like the drama and the, everything else about them being gay, this is what really sold it to the mainstream that people well, loved. Well,
2: and they do such a good job at that. Like they hook you in right at the beginning with yeah. just this like glamour of it all. And then they also kind of, like, just hit you a little bit with a beer bottle over the head at the same time with it. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, break you out of that fantasy. So, like, just to start with that is amazing. I, I mean, I think these are probably my first introduction to drag performances. <laughs> so they kind of, like, they go down as, like, now, whenever camp drag comes up, camp, that's every facial expression, every bit of performance comes. That's where my mind goes, is straight to that. Because they're so good. They're tasty,
1: I do so. think that uh, one of the joys of this movie is that it kind of really accurately captures drag, which I feel like is a, like a hard thing for a lot of drag movies to do. Like, even when we look at something like Chu Wong Fu, like, the experience of this, like, Massive pageant and runway that seems to be one night only and doesn't have any actual like performance numbers in it, like, doesn't seem as real of a drag show to me as Priscilla. I don't know. Like, AJ,
2: Ruby and AJ and the Kid, or whatever that movie's called, that TV show's called, does a good job.
1: <laughs> yeah, AJ and the Queen does a <laughs> great job of showing what drag is actually like. Um, oh my God. You know? everyone knows that once we all become performers yeah. we are assigned a child yeah, to take care of take from gig to gig and have them
2: scream it up which they were to- they were kind of touching on in Priscilla yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly well I think the other thing I really like is that you get to see them rehearse and you see how yeah. hard it actually is what they're doing yes. like it's not just these amazing things came out of nowhere right uh, yeah
1: I love that it contextualizes it as work as well like I I like anytime drag is contextualized in a film as as a career and an artistic outlet yeah. and a path of work and like also for some people like a financial path of work um instead of just being like a hobby a dirty little secret a fetish something that distracts me from the rest of my life I like that it can be shown as it's like here are three hard-working people who this is their job and this is what they do and they're very good at it like I like that kind of normalization of just being able to yeah. be like these are entertainers. These are. Well, I think you know, that. I actually like. These on the note have...
2: of like, Australians seemed back. Like, backlash that wasn't an accurate representation seems odd because, like, even if you're looking at the subject matter of the film, to me, it hits most plot points of like a lot of plot points that like queer people face, um, um, like challenges that we face. And like, you hitting things over the head in film doesn't work. So, like, Not like they could have been, like, in the bus and suddenly, like, oh, I tried to have sex the other day, but it's, like, illegal. Like, that's too over the head. That's not going to happen, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) A cop interrupted me the other day while I was penetrating. Yeah,
2: you know? Like, that's not, like, really how it's going to be portrayed. (laughs) So, like, you get them in these subtle ways. And, like, uh, the first time I watched Priscilla, I was 18. So, Mm. and all the, like, I was like, oh yeah, that's what it's like being gay in a small, like I just equated it out back to small town, like Alberta, and I was like, this is what it's like. You live your life, and then these things happen, and you have to deal with it. Uh-
0: the metaphor of the film, I think, is the most powerful to me, and how brilliant, mm-hmm. because the further away they get from the city, the more danger they're in, and the worse the things that happen to them become until they get to Alice Springs. And that speech that, again, Bernadette gives that is just so incredible to Felicia Jolly Goodfellow after she's taken some substances and been very unwise is just about the city protecting you, and like, maybe like it keeps us in, but it also keeps them out, is just such an interesting idea of the gay experience and the escape to the city and to these, these neighbors Even then, you're clustered within these particular neighborhoods.
1: It's funny. (laughs) We all sit around mindlessly slagging off that vile,
0: stinkhole of a city. But in its own strange way, it takes care of us. I don't know if that ugly wall of suburbia has been put there to stop them getting in or us getting
1: out. Yeah, completely. I it, that rings very true for me and my and my Toronto experience. And I think Champagne and I have had had a lot of conversations about this over the years of what a like we we hate Toronto for parts of it. You know what I mean? I think it's part of the experience of being a cool young Torontonian. Actually, no. A cool Torontonian of any age to be like I fucking hate it here. <laughs> um but that being said, you will also defend it till the death and understand that it saved you from a life of The mundane and the boring, and feeling trapped in a certain environment. You know, Shams and I have had a lot of conversations about growing up like that. And um, Champagne is more rural and small town in her upbringing than I am, but still, it's like I didn't grow up in the city, so. Having it kind of explained like that, it's funny, to put it in terms of ABBA, I really love this ABBA song called I Am The City. Do you know it? It's from their Even More Gold album. It's just really sweet and it's about just being like, it's it's sung from the perspective of a city that loves you. I mean, ABBA is huge in both of these movies. I'm just going to try to find the lyric that I really, really like. It's just in the chorus. I'm the street you walk, the language you talk, I am the city. The skyline is me and the energy, I am the city. The famous hotels and the cocktail bars and the funny smells and the turmoil, the cars, the people. The air that you're breathing is me. Yes, I am the city, you let me be. I like love that song, and I think it's very sweet and cute. And this movie and the way Bernadette explains that really feels kind of the same, except for the fact that... Um, Bernadette hates Abba. (laughs) (laughs) My one huge issue with this movie is that the one character that, in my opinion, should love Abba the most hates Abba.
0: Honestly, she's too old for Abba. And when we talk about Muriel's wedding, I'm going to get into the Australian relationship with Abba. But she's too old for Abba. That's the the issue. She's the supreme.
1: Yeah. Like, one of my favorite Bernadette quotes in the entire movie is, like, I'll join this conversation on the proviso that we stop bitching about people. Talking about wigs, dresses, bus sizes, penises, drugs, nightclubs, and bloody ABBA.
0: So good. Um, so we also good. have to talk about, of course, the costumes, because this won the Academy Award that year for Lizzie Gardner and Tim Chappell. Um, and if you go watch the video, it's very funny, their acceptance speech. Um, I believe Lizzie Gardner ends with, we have to go off and cry with dignity. Please excuse us. <laughs> like, it's, it's pretty I love good. that
1: so much.
0: And she also shows up in a dress made out of American Express gold cards, which are stunning and like just shows you the resourcefulness. That's her Oscar's that That's her Oscars dress.
1: That's fierce.
0: It's gorgeous. And here's who they beat. Bullets Over Broadway, Little Women, Maverick, and Queen Margot*. Good. So they call the, of course, the flip-flop dress Mm. that Hugo Weaving wears. They Mm -hmm. call it the thong dress. That is a $7 dress.
1: I did know that actually, that it's like put together with hot glue and things like that. It's one of my favorite kind of... Drag on the fly, on the cheap, like rags to riches kind of things. Same with um, like Jerry Hollowell's famous Union Jack dress was a tea towel sewn onto a tube dress. You know, um, I I love I love things like that that are so clear with their intent and their message. That uh, what if you don't want to even like it? Doesn't matter what it's made of. It doesn't matter what the material is. I love what I'm seeing. You know? Yeah,
2: honestly, I mean, listen. This show that does such a good job of making any garment look good, like they make one piece of fabric, just give your entire gay wet dreams the send-off it needs.
1: (laughs) Let's talk about the fabric. Please do.
2: It's just like so iconic.
1: I feel like drag performers everywhere, this has to be universal because every time I watch Priscilla and I see the image of just a beautiful human With, like, 60 feet of billowing silver fabric behind them while opera blasts. I'm, like, I feel nothing but pure, unadulterated envy.
2: I've seen the musical. I, like, I've seen it. And it's, like, at that moment, they have this contraption on the top of the bus that just extends over top of the audience. So they're in like the middle of the auditorium on this platform and this like fabric is just like going over top of the entire audience and like into the stage. It's, it was, it's like regardless of which production, it's just like movie or Broadway, like that moment is just always going to be so, it has to be so like dramatic. Yeah. They
0: almost didn't get that shot. It was, they had one day to do it. Like they, they had to shoot oh. this tight, tight, tight. They had spent so much time by hand. That piece of fabric is sewn to the extent that it is. It took them like hours and hours and hours and they get out in the desert and there's no wind. And so as the bus is going, it's just like dragging behind. And the production manager's like, look, uh, Hugo Weaving is in trouble. Like, this is dangerous. You can't do this. It might get caught under the bus and hurt him. So they were like, okay. So just as he was like gathering it up for them to like take it down, the wind picked up up and they were like okay go 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 and they got the shot and it's like yeah it's like perfect that must have been so stressful setting
2: up a crane and waiting for that oh my god
0: but i do want to talk about um the uh the aboriginal uh characters in this because they almost weren't in it they almost didn't get funding for it because people actually thought them putting that in there was australians are so weird they're, they, Yeah, their racial relations, especially with their aboriginal people, is very interesting. And then oh, the yeah. musical eliminates the aboriginal people altogether from it. The reason being is that they said they could not find a performer to be able to perform that well enough. I call bullshit. And they also said in international versions, who would play those characters? It's better not to have them at all than to whitewash those characters. Oh,
2: it's almost like you just hire indigenous actors across every country you're in. <laughs> yeah. Wow!
0: Yeah, oh. it's
1: it's almost like by saying, "Oh, I don't want to whitewash this part," you also say, "So I'm going to go through with the planned erasure of Indigenous uh, actors <laughs> in every country that this musical could be put it's... on." There the you go. The amount of ways
0: this movie almost didn't get made as well. To me, my personal favorite is they were turned down by almost every funding body in Australia, and one of them had a note attached to it that said, "This film is deeply shallow and should never be made."
2: <laughs> you know that was a straight person.
1: This movie is so not shallow. Yeah, like I can't, I can't, I can imagine describing this movie as a lot of things. I could imagine like funding companies thinking it was like frivolous or over the top or too camp or etc. But not shallow. That's not the critique I would give it to absolve it of my funding. I wouldn't be like this movie is shallow. <laughs> like it just feels like a, such an. We're
0: not paying choice. for pom poms, people. That's not oh, happening. God. <laughs>
1: yeah all
0: right well let's move on to our next film when we come back we're going to be of course looking at muriel's wedding which to me is as close to perfect as possible it is better than an (laughs) (laughs) song. that's coming up after the break To look at a poster for Muriel's wedding, with beaming Tony Collette dressed in an elaborate wedding gown, her face turned upwards into a shower of colored confetti, you'd think you were about to watch the biggest feel-good comedy of the year. The trailer tells the same story, joke after joke and jubilant ABBA soundtrack, and the tagline, success is the best revenge. In fact, the trailer ends on the Mean Girl character telling Muriel she looks beautiful on her wedding day. Like that's the way the movie ends. Oh boy, moviegoers were in for a surprise. I mean, I remember my mom watching this in the other room when I was a kid, and I could hear her alternating between laughing and crying and always pausing so that she could finish doing both. And when I watched it for the first time, that was honestly my reaction as well. I know you both had different reactions to it on your first time viewing, but my God, the first time I saw this, my life was changed. Dan Wiley, who plays Perry in the movie, has described this as the saddest comedy ever made. But still, <laughs> it's ABBA. That's it's accurate. A Again, amazing costumes, and it's two actresses who are too good for this world, oh Rachel Griffiths and Toni Collette. Muriel's wedding, my darlings. Muriel's wedding. Allison, talk to us about what this is about.
1: What isn't this about? Uh, Muriel has terrible friends, spends all her days listening to ABBA music to escape her life, and lives in a town that is unfortunately titled Porpoise Spit, Um, and has <laughs> a corrupt politician dad and uh, who like is constantly belittling her wife and she has all these siblings. I think there's like five of them in total. And then she goes to her like heinous friend's wedding and sees her husband cheating on her with like one of her best friends. And then they all like break up with her as a friend and then they go on a vacation without her. And then she gets a blank check from her parents to buy things necessary for a new job they think she's starting. But instead she steals $12,000 from her parents and goes on this vacation then moves to Sydney and starts new life for herself. (laughs) Um, and uh, it's all about her journey of meeting an old friend on that vacation and then moving to Sydney together and her becoming a new person and constantly wanting to reinvent herself with the common through line of consistently always just wanting to get married.
0: That that's success because that's that. And that's what she says to her mother. I'm going to be a success, mom. I'm going to get married and I'm going to be a success.
2: And it's Mm -hmm. like, well,
0: then what happens after that? So I think that... And then you find out what happens after that.
1: You sure do.
2: Well, which is kind of interesting because, like, what happens after that? Look at your mother's wedding. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's... Oh my god. I love I love this movie so much. I think it's I think it's so close to me perfect too. because for me it it rides that line so closely of being absolutely hilarious and totally fucking devastating yeah. but believable in in it. And these characters like in a lot of Australian movies are over the top. They're like people that like you simultaneously believe do and do not exist. He said he was having an affair. Who is? Rose Beeks. Rose Beeks. He said they don't sleep together. She only sucks him off. Out of respect for me. Yeah, Aussies,
2: like, I was talking with my friends, like, lol, not to mince my words, but, like, Aussies are kind of trashy and, like, <laughs> but <laughs> when you're, like, portraying, but they're also really good at, like, they're already kind of, like, a characterization of whiteness. So then when yeah. you, like, write it in as comedy, it's like this extra layer of just, like, them making fun of themselves, which is, like, really fucking hilarious.
1: Yeah, I will say that one of the key components to Australian humor is the ability to be able to first and foremost hu- destroy Australians. Like, mock Australia. <laughs> I think that's kind of, like, number one is, like, figure out how to mock Australia. And then number two is, numbers two through five are awful things. Um... <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: As someone pointed, I read a review, I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was, but someone made the point that the reason why Americans became so interested in um, Australian movies about suburbia, which Mm -hmm. this is is that australian suburbia is portrayed as so differently from american suburbia because american mm-hmm. suburbia is like bland and white picket fences yeah. and boring whereas this yeah. is like intensely garish colors and weird people <laughs> who are talking very loudly like yeah. it's, and you have that in like the television series kath and kim from australia as well mm-hmm. where there are suburbanites playing up like how weird these people are with constant fat jokes unfortunately but like that's the <laughs> that's how that sh- that kind of idea works and it's very different for us and it's very yeah fun.
2: it honestly is. My
1: theory is that um, Americans love any movie from Australia where the seasons are referenced by date. So I think it's all just because uh, she goes, when are you getting married? and Muriel goes, September. And she goes, spring. (laughs) And there was something about watching it and her going, spring, that I was like, uh, No.
0: So, this is also a queer icon film uh, for a lot of people. Uh, Tony Collette has talked about how this is the movie that she says she gets the most gays screaming at her about. (laughs) Like, they will track her down in the street and just be like,
2: so good in this movie. She's incredible. It's obviously like a gay. My friend was like, why is this movie a gay iconic, like an iconic gay movie? And I was like, oh, I don't really know. And then we turned it on, and the first still is just these women screaming. (laughs) (laughs) and i was like oh okay so there's our answer because
0: i actually think it's two reasons i think it's number one muriel is all about lies and Mm -hmm. she has to only when she's able to tell the truth is she set free and then the second reason is it's about chosen family and she gets to choose to go away with with rachel griffiths and form their own family together when they don't want to be with their their actual families right and i think that's the big reason people are like oh that messaging yeah self
2: like worth like yeah.
1: I think that's absolutely true and I also think there's an element to drag queens loving this movie because Muriel kind of has like Sydney drag you know what I mean it's like interesting she, she goes and becomes her like Sydney character of Muriel. you know she even has like a, a her drag name <laughs> she um, does yeah. yeah but but on top of that I think queer people at their base love watching two women fight while two other people do choreography to Waterloo. <laughs> I think that's what makes this a gay movie. That's
2: so good.
0: And also I'm sure because of Daniel Payne, who plays David Van Arkel he is very pretty in He's this
1: movie. He's so hot.
0: They shoot him so fetishistically too when he comes out of the water like a Bond girl and you're
2: like man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love objectifying a straight man. Yeah, it's fine. He got paid. It's
0: fine. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> he got a good career <laughs> off of this. Yeah. Um, the other thing this film very much fet- fetishizes, and we should probably talk about, is Abba. And as we mentioned, the last uh, the last movie has a lot of Abba in it. This one does too. Apparently, they did not get uh, permission to use the Abba songs until two weeks before they began shooting. Wow. Otherwise, as a
2: producer, that would stress me the fuck yeah. out. Oh,
0: I'm sure it did for them too. They were gonna use the Village People otherwise, which I, I wondered,
2: like would it have been the same movie as like her crying in front of her mirror and then suddenly looking up and it's like. Bah, bah,
0: bah, 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 bah. <laughs> like the dancing queen is like such a perfect metaphor for what she's going through like it's really heartbreaking. It's true. Cuz it could be any man, right? He, the guy is here somewhere and she keeps looking for that man which is why she's attached to it. And she has that incredible line since i moved in with you my i haven't listened to abba once because my life is now better than an oh. abba song. And then
2: she it's turns so it on a few minutes later and you're like
0: <laughs> uh,
2: god, I the- it. Oh my god, I have to I have to geek out for a moment like yeah. Tony Collette's range of emotions is so fucking good. Oh my god, she's so good. Like the fact that like the crying that she can do when it's like so over the top and camp, but also so rooted in truth. Yes, is like so heartbreaking. It's and I'm like Tony Collette. I want to be you. I want to marry you. I just want to like drink Tony Collette.
1: I had the exact same thought when they like kind of break up with her in that. Like club restaurant, and she's like,
2: yeah, heavy,
1: heaving, sobbing. I think it's supposed to be funny, and I was watching it like almost choking up, being like, this is like too honest. I feel like I'm genuinely watching someone like really have their heart break and like consider so much like struggle in themselves
0: the best yeah. moment of that scene though is before the breakup even happens which you know is coming she's got her big like fruity cocktail drink and they say to her come on girls let, let her finish. finish her orgasm her screaming orgasm
1: it's just it, yeah she's she's drinking a screaming orgasm at least let oh it finish God. her orgasm
0: and then they watch her in complete silence yeah. as she just drains this drink, just staring at her. It's magnificent. It's well, <laughs> so horrible. And then oh they God. make fun of
1: her for thinking she's trying to steal the moment, which is ridiculous. But um, <laughs> the other thing is that I think it's constantly shown that even though Muriel does... What is like objectively a quote unquote like a bad thing to like steal money from her family?
2: You're terrible, Muriel. I'm oh, so, so good. good.
1: But that it's always shown that at any moment when her friends are being heinous to her, which is so early in the movie, she has this ace in the hole of knowing that her other friend slept with the main mean girl's husband. Like, she could tell her that at any time. She could lay that information on her at any time. And she constantly makes the choice not to. And I think that's really interesting to note how much that endears us all to Muriel without even maybe realizing is that she actively makes a choice to still be a decent person when hurt and just, like,
0: can't that's the thing that i think you are able to continue to love her that's a great point allison because she does when she has to make the right choices she more often than not does with the exception of when she abandons yeah. rachel griffiths for her own success which is like yeah. oh my god that yeah. part breaks me every fucking time
1: oh it's so sad it's so good i have
0: to go good luck with what's his name where are you
1: going where do you think back to paul perspic with mum. we're catching the bus out tonight I don't want you to. Well, you should have thought of that before you gave up on me. I
0: couldn't pay all the rent without you. I couldn't even do the shopping. I needed help, I needed a friend.
1: I mean, I don't want you to go back by bus. I bought you two plane tickets
0: but I want to talk about PJ Hogan and Jocelyn Morehouse, who are a married couple. PJ Hogan wrote and direct this film, and and Jocelyn Morehouse is his wife who helped him produce it, and they are a very rare instance of a married couple who both make films together and alternate who gets to direct and who produces. I think there's a very good reason why PJ Hogan, off of this film, was then asked to direct My Best Friend's Wedding. It's a very similar Mm. vibe, so it's like, yeah, and that's why My Best Friend's Wedding is so good. I'm
1: a huge fan of My Best Friend's Wedding. I've loved that movie since I was, like, way too young to like that movie but I always loved it but my takeaway as an adult re-watching it on like a semi regular basis is always that I'm like why do I like Julia Roberts' character she's so it's vicious. awful the entire plotline of this movie is her trying to do a t- terrible thing, but, I but
0: like Muriel, she mm. has had terrible things done to her. The yeah. way her boyfriend in that film treats her is, or not the boyfriend, the, the man who she's trying yeah. to get back, the best friend, is not nice to her and keeps no. putting her also in very sexually inappropriate positioning, like the whole getting changed thing. We're talking about another movie. We'll have you guys back when we need to talk about My Best Friend's <laughs> I, Wedding, obviously. I would
1: love <laughs> to talk about My Best Friend's Wedding. Oh my god.
0: <laughs> this film is based on a true story. PJ Hogan came from an incredibly abusive family, like more so than what you see in the film, which you're seeing in the film is like a very emotionally abusive family which for some people if they're watching this i don't know if they would even recognize it's abusive it just feels awkward but like this is straight up you're useless you're all i mean when um, bill hunter does that speech to them in public the chinese restaurant and tells them they're all useless and it's just heartbreaking
2: sits around the house like a dead weight watching tv sleeping all day getting arrested at weddings you're useless you're all useless to useless no
0: It's that and more that his family was going through. And PJ Hogan escaped to, he was one of the older siblings, and he escaped to Sydney. And then his sister did that. She uh, she got $12,000 from their mother in order to buy cosmetics from their father's mistress, of course, who everybody knew was the mistress <laughs> except for the mom, and then stole the money, went on vacation, and then when she got caught, ran away to Sydney. So it's, uh, it's pretty amazing that that actually happened. But PJ Hogan said, immediately, I knew why she did it. Like there was never a moment of like, why would you do this? Like, no, I know exactly why you did it. Yeah. Uh, What an interesting thing for a filmmaker to take that point of view, because in somebody else's hands, she would have been the villain, but she's not. Here she's the hero and you understand completely why she takes off. It's like a heist movie, uh, but on a small scale. <laughs> it's like a comedy heist that,
1: movie. That is kind of true. I do love the cut when they they realize what Muriel's done and thus like kind of present to the audience exactly what Muriel's done in more plain terms. And it cuts to them just like celebrating after the Waterloo performance in the pool, yeah. like wet in her wig. There's this beautiful shot like, of
2: just like the two their two faces in that moment of like Rachel Griffiths and um oh. Colette. And they're just like leaning on each other, but then, like, on the corner of the screen, you just see the top of the moe. And I'm like, I love that. Like, moe just got this amazing advertisement, this huge-ass bottle.
1: I was just going to say the experience of, like, lying down somewhere, drinking late at night, smoking and singing ABBA songs is very near and dear to my heart. Like, an (laughs) (laughs) ABBA-themed after-party. An ABBA after party is something I've been lucky enough to experience many times in my life. (laughs) On a weekly
2: basis since moving to Toronto.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I would say um, between 2015 and 2017, like every other night.
0: (laughs) Well, talking about um, ABBA, we should probably get into why do Australians love ABBA so much? there's an article I read about this uh, in uh, the the Sydney Morning Herald that's the paper and they talked about when their first album came out um, Sydney was in like absolute turmoil very similar to what was happening in the United States where the Vietnam War had just ended so a lot of people were really messed up um, their government got overthrown because of corruption charges they had to like completely replace the government people were not in a great place they were just so excited to have something that was joyous and fun and people really grabbed onto it so when when Fernando it was Fernando hit the airwaves um, it stayed on the top of the charts for 14 weeks it beat the Beatles hey Jude which had the previous record of 13 wow. weeks.
1: I love that.
0: Yeah, people really grabbed onto it. And it's so much so that when they showed up for their first, like, tour, um, the prime minister had to, like, get special favors pulled in so he could get tickets for his family. Um, Nicole Kidman talks about it on a regular basis as being a defining moment for herself because she was there at the airport seeing them. Um, And she's like, they took time to sign papers and things. And she says, I've always tried to be gracious to my fans in that same way. So it's like, wow, this is really influential for people
2: that's (laughs) wild i didn't know that it's
1: very cool. I've done some reading about this before, about how the fact that Australia was one of the first major places they could tour, that they had an audience that would want them. And so like as a band, their first kind of rock star experience of having that big moment of people greeting them at a plane was Australia. And so they had like a symbiotic uh, relationship like with Australia for the rest of their career, where they always factored in going to Australia and like Australian releases for singles. And I find that... Just, like, so interesting that Australia was just like, no, you're ours. We love you. Like, we love you so much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's the costumes. It's the tax The tax purposes costumes. You know they dress like that, right, because of tax purposes?
2: Oh, my God, totally. Did you know this, no, Shepi? that's so funny.
0: Under Swedish law, you can't write off your outfits if it's something you could wear every day. So they had to make their outfits so outlandish that it would be ah. nothing they could wear on the street. So that's why they dress the way they dress is for tax purposes. I
2: love that. It's, it's pretty amazing it's so I do have to say like this film is actually hilarious It like just um really coming for white people again I'm gonna bring that up there's like the white woman calling the cops which I just thought was like so funny and how she's like this weird mm. thread throughout the entire thing but also mm. there's this moment with the dad where he's talking about it's like this weird premonition <laughs> it's like talking about how he lost the mail-in vote <laughs>
0: When oh, the, the postal ah, vote. Ah, yes. Ah, it's, ah, I want to see the movie about the, no, no, he has the, he lost the postal workers. That's oh, it's
2: the, the postal workers. I thought it was yes. the postal vote and I was like.
0: Oh my God,
2: just like Trump. That's so fucking funny.
1: That's funny, Champagne. I thought the same thing as you.
0: No, because later there's a reference that like, it's because of um, those stupid women at the post office that he lost. So apparently some of these women at the post office had some sort of vendetta against him, which is also very funny. Just thinking about what he possibly did to these women at the post office. It's wonderful for Debbie to give you work. She's a wonderful person. I don't care what anyone else says. What who says?
2: All those people who've never liked Dad, those greenies, and those terrible women at the post office. I thought it was very 2020, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: it's also amazing to me that this, like a lot of other Australian films... Almost didn't get made, even though it made this massive international hit. Um, and they actually had to use their buddy, Jane Campion, who had just won an Oscar for the piano. Um, they went to film school with her and were like, hi, we have this movie. We're trying to get funding. Can you help us out? And she was like, yeah, yeah. Let me uh, introduce you to this French company that produced my movie. And they loved it. And so this was actually produced by a French company, which is, of wow. course, oh, they cool. get it. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course
2: they do.
1: Justice for Tony Collette. Tony Collette should be in more things. Tony Collette should be in everything.
0: I agree. And less hereditary. Less sad. Less sad for Tony Collette. You know, I'd I'd like to see her in more comedies. I think
2: every listener right now should just drop what they're doing and go watch United States of Tara. Although I am not sure how it holds up say. in 2021, but like, it's so good.
1: I was just going to say the same thing. You stole the words out of my mouth. Oh, she's so good <laughs> in
2: it. She's so like
1: the range. The range. Anyway. Yeah. I love her. Can we
0: just say more Diablo Cody collaborations? Yeah. Let's just Yeah. Let's just end with that. Well, thank you so much to both of you for joining us this episode. Allison Chains, how do people find you and your work?
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. You can find me on Instagram at Allison Chains, uh, same way it's spelled in probably the description of this episode. uh, A-L-L-Y-S-I-N-C-H-A-Y-N-E-S. And you can catch me broadcasting and producing weekly with uh, a cool collective of queer artists, uh, such as Champagne on speakeasy-tv.com, the uh, Speakeasy Queer Network channel that uh, I help produce with a bunch of other amazing queer folks including lizzie renault owner of speakeasy tattoo shop um, we just moved to a new studio and we've got a bunch of new pride programming coming out so yeah check it out it's amazing we've got content uh many nights of the week where our schedule is just like filling up more and more and we've got rupaul's drag race all-star six starting on june 24th <laughs> i haven't even talked to champagne about it i'm like if you want to do it let me know <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: anyway that's where you can so, find you- me Excellent, thank you. And Champagna, how do people find you?
2: Uh, they can find me on Instagram under Champagne underscore Pappy. Um, I'm also on TikTok underscore Champagne underscore. Um, that's that. Check, keep an, keep an eye to the ground. I have a web series coming out shortly. And then you can also catch both Allison and I on the first season of CBC's Queens. Um, And hopefully for a second season as well.
0: Yeah, Queens is delightful if people haven't checked it out. Talk about high camp. Once again, thank you so much to both of you for joining us. And you can join us next week where we're going to a little town called Bedrock. Twitch, Twitch. That's right. It's the Flintstones. And of course, we're going to be talking about that fantastic Elizabeth Taylor cameo.
2: Yes! uh...
0: That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to follow, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite on demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Allison Chains and Champagne as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Mainz. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagné. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.